You're listening to STEMcast, brought to you by McGill iGEM. On this episode of STEMcast, we'd like to introduce to you Dr. Michael Hendricks. Dr. Hendricks is currently a Canada Research Chair in Neurobiology and Behaviour. He did his BSc at Bowdoin, his PhD at National University of Singapore, and postdoc research at Harvard. Dr. Hendricks has published papers not just on worm neuroscience, but also on the gender gap in research funding. His lab website is home to a pretty awesome picture of a cowboy water bear on a worm. Hi, Dr. Hendricks. So glad to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction and thanks for having me. Okay, so our first question is going to be um, just asking you to tell us a little bit about how you got started at your lab and what sort of got you interested in worms. Like, why did you pick this field? Sure. Um, I had kind of a strange uh, path to neuroscience. I was um, wasn't particularly interested in life sciences at all in high school. Like I avoided taking biology in high school because I didn't like it in junior high. Uh, I was really interested in in math and English literature and music for my main thing. So I went to do my undergrad. I was sure I was going to be an English major or a music major. And I was for a while. And then by chance at at that school, you had to take classes in different um, areas. So you had to take natural sciences class, you had to take like social sciences, and you had to take humanities classes. So it was kind of this liberal arts curriculum. And so I took a biology class for non-science majors about evolutionary ecology, and I loved it. I thought it was really cool. I never had like a good biology class before or one that was where I learned about evolutionary theory. And then I decided to take more biology because of that. And it's when I took developmental biology that I really fell in love with biology. So I love development. I think it's uh, one of the most fascinating fields in biology, this kind of like amazing self-organizing process that embryos go through. So I got really interested in that. And then um, after my undergrad, I went to grad school for like six months and I hated it and I quit. Um, And then I went and did a bunch of other stuff Uh, that was totally not related to science or anything. But a few years later, I kind of kept having this pull back to science and I had seen what other kinds of jobs were like and they were mostly pretty boring. And so I went back to grad school quite a bit older than most people when they start grad school. I was almost, I was 29, I think. And um, I went into developmental biology again in zebrafish, which is what I'd really thought was cool as an undergrad. And um, but the lab I went into was doing developmental neurobiology. So they were looking at brain development, axon guidance, how neurons in the brain get wired up together. Um, And this was in Singapore. We had moved there. My wife and I moved there because we wanted to live in a different part of the world and be in a different context. Um, And it was a really great experience. But as I sort of got into studying the brain developmentally, I started to get interested in like how the brain works a little bit. Um, I didn't. I don't think I'd ever taken a neuroscience class per se. Um, no, no, I hadn't. Um, and so I was had to like backfill in a lot of stuff for neuroscience. Um, but I did my PhD and then I wanted to do something related to behavior and so sort of neural circuit function. And I'm, I'm a strong believer in reductionism. Uh, simple systems are where you start when you want to understand something. And so C. elegans is the model system with the smallest brain. Um, and so being like a super overconfident postdoc, I thought I would roll into the Jiang lab at Harvard and I would put GCAMP and channel adoption and all the neurons and flick them off and on and figure out how the brain works and uh, then figure out something else to do for my second year as a postdoc. Uh, <laughs> of course, I spent most of the last like 10 years studying like one neuron pretty much. So uh, that hasn't panned out. <laughs> so. That's so cool. 
Yeah. Um, it's really interesting that you took sort of a, I guess, not really unconventional, but sort of a path that you don't see a lot of other, um, like, people that we've interviewed on this podcast take. I think that's really interesting. And it must have been really cool to, like, get more of a breadth and experiencing, like, industry, that kind of thing. Yeah, it did help a lot. I think it made grad school a lot easier. I think one of the hardest transitions is going um, from being an undergraduate, which is uh, highly scheduled, and what you have to do is very clearly set out for you. Um, you're on a fairly short time scale. You know, classes are rarely more than a semester. And then grad school is very unstructured by comparison. You have these really long-term goals, could be four or five years or something. And it's easy to spin your wheels a lot, I think. Um, so having work experience was one thing. One, I think I just wasn't like mature enough for grad school to take on like a goal that big, you know, so I needed to live a little bit and I traveled a bit and I had different kinds of jobs and I got to know what my own kind of strengths were and time management, all these soft skills, things and stuff right, that yeah. you can develop as a grad student, right? But already having them when I started grad school made it a lot easier. Um, being in Singapore made being in grad school a lot easier too. So Singapore at that time was really going hard into like biomedical stuff. So they built this huge new research campus or they were in the process of building it called Biopolis. And I wasn't on that. I was at a government research institute on the NU campus, um, but it was very, it was well paid compared to being a grad student in most places. Um, it was great quality of life in Singapore as a student at that time. Rents were pretty cheap. Food is super cheap. You can travel on the weekend. We always tell this story, like uh, my wife was in grad school there too. And then we were both postdocs in Boston. And when we moved to Boston, it was like, uh, people were like, oh, you can go to Cape Cod for the weekend and stuff. And we were like, well, I don't know. We used to go to like Bali or Thailand for the weekend. <laughs> Cape Cod kind of sucks. <laughs> so uh, it, it was definitely unconventional, I think, to, to be in Singapore at that time. Maybe less so now. I don't know. Um, but uh it was a longer path for sure. So um, I always feel like I'm a little old for my career stage, but uh, so I started by postdoc old, started my faculty job kind of old, but it's fine. Everything's been great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As long as you find joy in what you're doing now, that's what, really what matters. Yeah. It's really interesting that you've got this kind of non-linearity to your career path. And I think that's something that's important because it means you got to explore a lot of different fields before you choose what you're going into. And then you I think as you mature, your interests also change and mature. I'm going to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, which is the C. elegans system. So yeah. C. elegans are model organisms for human behavior. But as you said, they're very simple neuro neural circuits. We have a much more simple neural circuits than humans do. How many neurons? I'm not exactly sure. But how do we scale them up to apply to human cognition and, you know, slot into how we think about the brain and behavior. And do you find this to be a limitation in some ways? Do you find it to be more or less complex? Sure. Those are great questions. So Cielians, um, it's kind of funny. It's maybe a subject of some debate, how many neurons they have. <laughs> they have either 300 or 302. There's one really annoying cell type that people can't agree whether it's a neuron or not. So it looks like a neuron kind of from most of its gene expression doesn't seem to have any synapses and that's what annoys people about it um but of course uh synapses aren't the only way neurons communicate right neurons are also cells so they also have secretion and they can signal in all different ways so i don't know it's an open question Three, 300 or 302 you can take your pick um certainly there are limitations right with studying an animal like that uh 
they simply don't do and don't have the sort of range of behaviors and kind of cognitive capabilities that animals with larger brains have. So if you care about things that are very complex and high up on that sort of cognitive scale of, of functioning, um, C. elegans is not the right model. Um, that said, they do, they do do a lot of things. They, they forage, they avoid things that are dangerous. They can learn. Um, they have some really interesting, uh, ethologically relevant behaviors related to interactions with their environment. Um, and so they do have a lot of things that are evolutionary solutions to problems all organisms have always had, right? So there's deep conservation in some of the things a brain needs to be able to do in order to help its owner survive, right? It has to be able to um, detect the right kind of stimuli and all these things. So when you're talking about studying things at the level of neural circuits, the hope is, and it's not necessarily going to be true, but the hope is that the sort of computational logic of circuits that perform certain kinds of functions uh, are is going to be preserved at some level. Um, we know at the molecular level, like the how neurons function, there's tons of cons conservation, right? So the way uh, a synapse works is very similar fundamentally in terms of calcium-mediated vesicle fusion. A lot of the presynaptic machinery, some of these components were discovered in C. elegans, um, things like that. So the things that at the cellular level and maybe at the sort of circuit level we can think might be conserved. There are some reasons to think that C. elegans, though, is is special. It's divergent in some ways. It's It's been evolving just as long as we have, right? It's not just some more primitive form of thing. In fact, you could say that, you know, they have this three-day generation time, so they actually evolve faster. And so they really specialize for being small, and uh, they really specialize for being rapid reproducers. And so that puts very different constraints uh, on the brain, right? So their brains are really fundamentally different in some other ways. What I like about it is that because C. elegans has this highly stereotyped nervous system of 300 neurons, um, and we think that the connectivity is basically the same from individual to individual within a strain, I can go into the worm and look at a particular neuron or even a particular synapse and know what it's all about. I know what this neuron's for. I know what this synapse of this other neuron means. And I can look at a behavioral readout from manipulating one synapse. Um, and so in humans, where you have to think about in, within our you know 80 billion neurons that each have a thousand synapses, how can you study the functional significance of things at that scale at the level of cognition or behavior? It's very difficult, but we can traverse those sort of like scales of anatomical scales and organizational scales and see elegans much more easily. So that's what I like about it. Oh, that's really cool. Um, um, okay. So your latest publication on your website is, it sort of reminded me of that. Um, it's sort of about how the environment that an organism lives in and how that can affect its behavior, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to study behavioral plasticity and how maybe behavioral plasticity is different in human versus um, C. elegans? Sure. Um, I got interest, interested in that mostly because I think C. elegans is, is a really promising system for that for two reasons. One is that they have probably of any animal, the best studied developmental response to the environment of any organism. So when the environment is bad, which for them means crowded or hot or, or no food, 
um, they go into a specialized state called dower. Um, and they can just hang out like that. So basically they pause development, they become, they stop eating, um, they seal their body in a much more uh, protective kind of covering so they can be dried out and not die. And they just kind of wait for conditions to improve. And they can be like that for weeks um, or sometimes months. Um, and then they come out and they resume development. Um, what we thought was interesting, and that's been studied to death in terms of genetics, like what are the pathways that trigger that choice to enter that alternate developmental pathway because it's a really critical choice for the organism as it develops if you do that and you shouldn't have you're at a huge disadvantage because all your siblings that didn't go into dower are reproducing much faster now um, whereas if you should have gone into dower and you don't you probably die because the environment's bad um, so we knew that the the organism was exquisitely uh tuned to making this developmental choice. So then the question is, having learned something about the environment, that learning maybe the, when you're developing that the environment might be unreliable or not great, um, how does that change the behavior of the adult animal? Because we know from foraging theory that um, for lack of a better word, the animal's beliefs about the abundance of food in the environment, how hard it's gonna be to find other food sources, really informs its its foraging strategies. And so we thought maybe foraging strategies would be altered by this experience. If you went through this starvation-induced dower development, um, you, you might have learned something about the environment that causes you to alter your foraging strategies in a predictable way. So our first result was it wasn't true, um, but we had done it in the lab strain that everyone, the standard lab strain, which is called N2, and it's from Bristol, England. Uh, and it didn't seem to have any plasticity, but then we tested in wild strains. So there's wild strains from Hawaii and Europe and all over the world. And all of them did change their foraging behavior after going through dower. And so it's something that was lost through domestication, which we don't know exactly why, but you can imagine lots of reasons why you would lose this kind of plasticity if you've been living in a lab uh, for hundreds of generations, because there's in the lab, there's there's always abundant food. The conditions don't change. And so there's no game to play of guessing about the environment. Um, so what we found was, yes, adults that have gone through this starvation-induced dower phase um, fundamentally change their foraging behavior as adults in a way that's consistent with being pessimistic about the abundance of food in the environment. So we think this is interesting purely from an ecological point of view, because there's this whole ecological theory around adaptive developmental plasticity, which you see in lots of organisms where um, if you have an environmental cue that's a predictor of future conditions, then you have the opportunity to develop phenotypes that are better adapted to those future conditions. And so we see that happen. Um, in humans, there's sort of a sub-theory around that, uh, around disease called developmental origins of health and disease, which are looking at how the, the perinatal or in utero environment. So whether you're exposed to nutritional stress or other kinds of stress during early life, um, we know is a risk factor for future disease in adulthood. So ranging from things like diabetes and metabolic conditions to things like uh, schizophrenia and mental disorders. Um, why that should be the case, uh, we don't know, but we do know it takes like a really long time to see what's gonna happen with a human uh, you know, at least 20 years or so. And even with a mouse, it takes six months plus. With a worm, it takes three days to see how the developmental environment affects them as an adult. So we thought it's a really good system. And I know I'm talking too much, but I'm going to say one more thing about it, which is 
I talk about how C. elegans only has 300 neurons and the nervous system is basically the same in each individual. And so it's actually that stereotypy, that sort of invariance that makes it a good system to study plasticity. Because when we look in these different groups of animals, they should be the same in, in sort of how their neurons function and how they behave. I mean, the behavior always has plasticity in it, um, but it makes it much easier to find differences when the baseline is they're all the same. Mice, humans, mammals, one, we don't even know where to look in the brain. Two, our brains develop in a really different way that includes a lot more kind of uh, probabilistic development and uniqueness in our brains than we think the C. elegans has in its brain. And so it makes it a really good system to study plasticity. Um, our ass assumption about sort of um, conservation is kind of the same. Adapting to the developmental environment is something that is uh, ubiquitous, right? It's something all organisms have to try to do. Um, and so this is evolutionary ancient. And we know a lot of these pathways that sort of control entry into dower and exit from dower are things that affect uh, developmental growth decisions in all animals. Um, and so we think there's this core conservation. And we're, what we're interested in how in how those pathways that that regulate this developmental decision develop uh, regulate development of the nervous system. And so we think there's going to be conservation there too. That's um, amazing. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I'm saying that it's not necessarily true, but we hope it's going to be true. Otherwise it might just be interesting biology on its own. Um, yeah, no, that's the other I'm thing. Sure I don't, that has I, like, uh, sorry, go ahead. I'm sure that has really cool applications for even adjacent fields like psychology. If people are studying on rats, it's important to see like how, animals' brains change in a lab setting versus in the wild and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so all lab animals are domesticated, right? They're like weird. Like they're not like their wild counterparts. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, to jump in here, what you were saying about the C. elegans, the wild type versus the N2 strain is really interesting. As Mia was saying, there are huge implications of that for lab research, right? Because in a lot of lab research on uh, let's say histone modifications in certain neural circuits or whatever. We use lab strains of mice. We expose them to some kind of stress, and we we measure certain markers, DNA methylation or whatever it might be. And the idea that the adaptation and the response from the brain is different in lab strains, especially if there's not as much of an incentive to have neuroplasticity, since it doesn't really confer an advantage in the lab. It's huge because it means we're using a data set that doesn't that might not apply directly or translate directly and there's this thing you were saying earlier about working backwards almost from the c elegans since we know that there are certain we know that there are certain neural pathways that confer where are advantageous to life just the ability to adapt and the ability to change so the core idea here is essentially that if we have some basic drivers of life and behavior in response to the environment from C. elegans, we can generalize them or we can make we can draw some interesting conclusions about that and apply them to animal and human biology. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah, exactly. So you, if we develop the sort of understanding of the genetic pathways involved in regulating these developmental decisions in a simple animal, then we then we have somewhere to start looking in more complex animals. And that's really been the, um, you know, systems like C. elegans and Drosophila, the fruit fly, 
that were really the hardcore genetic model systems of the 20th century, it it really did work out that it wasn't obvious it was going to work out that way. But it turned out like the developmental patterning genes discovered in Drosophila in in screens done in the 70s and 80s, people were like, oh, great, you're learning a lot about fruit flies. Who cares? It turns out they are exactly the same genetic networks and and gene families that regulate uh, organismal patterning in all animals. Um, and so I think that the degree of conservation was, wasn't known. Um, and a lot of people didn't think it was going to be very conserved. They thought like mammalian development would be fundamentally different for buffalo development. And of course it is in court ways, you know, we come out as people and they come out as fruit flies. Um, but the genetic module modules that regulate cellular decisions during development are really, really highly conserved. They've been exactly the same for hundreds of millions of years. Yeah, that's, it's, uh, I think that ties into this instinct that a lot of people have in scientific research to differentiate humans and mammals from other animals in a lot of different ways. I mean, when you think about the origins of what we thought evolution was, and we thought that humans were fundamentally different from animals, that we thought in a fundamentally different way. And I think a lot of the science coming out now is showing, no, we actually have a lot of similar and conserved pathways. So how do you think that kind of bias affects the way that people look at neuroscience or the way that people look at scientific discoveries about uh, animals or other model organisms? Yeah, I, I'll say a couple of things about that. One is, yes, you can learn. Um, so modern neuroscience is very mammal focused, as we know, right? It, and really mouse focused, right? You go to the Society for Neuroscience meeting, I'm guessing it's more than 90% about mice. Um, that's great. It's because we've developed all these tools and this deep understanding of mouse neuroanatomy and, and genetic tools for manipulating and measuring things in the mouse brain. Uh, but there's a danger in that too, right? Mice are very specialized for certain ecological niches. Um, the degree of correspondence between how, how mice approach cognitive tasks is really even very different from how rats do it and very different from how primates do it and very different from how... And there's sort of an older tradition in studying um, brain and behavior that uh, was called neuroethology in the 20th century, where it was really about finding different kinds of animals and what they're good at. So you study things like um, songbirds because they're good at learning vocal vocalizations, or you study um, bats because they're good at echolocation. So you study animals that have these really highly developed um, specialized abilities, and you study those. You study electric fish because they do something totally bonkers, right? They use electrical fields to sense their environment and to communicate. And the power of that is you really learn how dedicated neural circuits work under different conditions, and then what's shared across these highly diverse systems and how they accomplish really divergent tasks. Um, and, and there's a lot of power and richness to that. And then we learn a lot of things that we now see coming up in like mouse neuroscience, right? A lot of these concepts from the 20th century that were found in these highly diverse systems are being sort of rediscovered in the context of mouse systems neuroscience. Um, and I think part of the, the danger is focusing too much on things that you want to translate into human clinical significance. I think it's important to have a translational outlook in a lot of contexts. But when you're talking about fundamental stuff, I think if you're only looking for translationally significant things in mammalian systems, there's a lot of things you're just not going to discover ever. And a lot of those things might be 
So I, I think I mentioned this in, in class, but it's like, when you think about biotechnologies that enable us to do research, um, almost all of them are evolved technologies. They're technologies we've found lying around in nature. They're not things that we really invented, whether it's optogenetics or attack polymerase or CRISPR or GFP. We found those things because people were looking in weird places in the natural world, not because they were trying to solve a particular, figure out what's going in in, in the brain of a mouse model of Huntington's disease, right? Um, yet those are the things that really enable us to discover it. And, and I think when everyone focuses on the same questions in the same system, two things happen. One, you lose a lot of surprise and creativity, um, but also I, it's kind of boring from the sense if everyone's trying to do the same thing, then everyone's research is kind of replaceable, right? Um, if it's just racing to all do the same thing in the same system, who, why do we need 90% of those people doing it then, right? <laughs> Like we can get by without it. So I think science is at its best when it's kind of like everyone does the sort of run to daylight. Everyone tries to find some space to discover things from the natural world. And we don't know. We don't have to know what, what the application or conceptual advance of doing those things are. But we know that's been successful in the past, that we find surprising things in nature, and they often tend to be really useful. Uh, and we learn a lot from them. And it's always finding these things that we weren't expecting to find uh, that tend to be the most transformative, I think. Um, really that said, we, we do have to like make progress on the problems we want to solve, right? They're often clinical and translational problems. So you need both both sides uh, of this, but, um, it, it, and where you'd strike the balance is, is a tough thing to, to determine. No, that's amazing to hear. Um, you talked a little bit about sort of the creativity part of science. Do you think that that's like, really what drives science for you or like what if not what motivates you to keep going on your career path the way you are yeah I, I feel like I, I kind of think about it in that way sometimes like my hope is that most of what we do in the lab is stuff that other people weren't going to do automatically mm -hmm. um, I mean that's not always true and there is value in having groups try to work on similar problems because they can compare their results. And actually a lot of productivity in science comes from people getting different results and then trying to figure out why they're getting different results. Because still in experimental science, I would say, you know, we control as much as we can in terms of variables, but the sort of unknown unknowns uh, uh, kind of still dominate, right? We don't, when we do C. elegans behavior, even in this little worm, it varies a lot and mostly we don't know why. And right. so we control the experiments as much as we can. And if we're getting totally different results from another lab that's trying to do a similar experiment, that's very productive because we can start to figure out, okay, what are they doing differently? So that's a really important science part of science too. But I feel like there are fields where everyone knows what the next question is or the next obvious goal is, and then they're trying to do it as fast as possible. I find that like stressful and boring at the same time stressful because you're always in this like competitive mode of trying to beat other people just in terms of speed which is kind of dumb um but also boring because like you like i could drop dead tomorrow and they'll just figure it out and it won't matter that i even had a lab you know so um so I, that creativity and sort of um thinking of interesting questions that maybe most other people aren't going to try to do. Um, and also thinking creatively about how we can ask questions from an animal like C. elegans is kind of a fun exercise. Like, 
given its its limited anatomy and behavioral capacities, so what kind of questions can we ask about biology from, from an organism like this? Okay, um, I'm gonna sort of flip what we're talking about a little bit and ask about another publication that you have on your lab website. Um, one of your publications is about how women in science get lower amounts of funding when they apply for grants. Why do you think it's important to acknowledge these divides in science and what motivated your work on this publication, given that it's like quite different from your work on C. elegans and that those systems? Sure. Um, so, so the motivations for this are, are uh, a couple of fold. The first is that um, these are public funds, uh, research and public uh, institutions. We have a, a legal requirement and obligation, ethical obligation to not be discriminatory in how we allocate resources and opportunities. Um, the second I would say is if we are if biases are being introduced into evaluation of scientists and how they are uh, awarded funding, um, then by definition, we're not funding the best proposals, right? Um, if there's some bias sneaking in, we want to fund the best proposals by, you know, there's no such thing as the best proposals in some sense, but we have a we have a process for determining um we don't have enough money to fund all the proposals we think are good, right? So we need a fair way to come up with which ones we are going to fund. Um, so it needs to be fair, uh, again, just for ethical reasons, but also because we don't want to fund things that aren't the best in the best in the top tier category. Um, so things were happening in Canadian funding, specifically through CIHR, the Canadian Institutes for Health Research, where they were revamping their programs. And the way they revamped their programs created kind of a, a natural experiment. So normally during grant review, you send your application to uh, the funding agency, a peer review committee looks at some subset of those applications and they essentially rank them, right? They give them all scores and then they rank them and they go down the rank list funding them until they run out of money. And it, at that time it was getting pretty bad. Like CIHR could only fund sort of 15% or less of the applications they got. And so this has a couple of negative impacts. One, it means you're not funding a lot of really good research ideas. Two, it means uh, faculty are spending more and more time writing research grants to try to get funding than actually conducting research. Um, so this was seen as a problem. So one thing they decided to do was to make a special category where people would get larger grants over longer periods of time um, based on basically their track record. Um, and so when they did this, instead of having people just read the application, they did two-stage evaluation. In the first stage, they evaluated the applicant. And the criteria they used are like their, their publication record, their sort of leadership in their field, awards they'd gotten, all these kinds of things. Um, and then they had a second stage evaluation where they evaluated the scientific merits of what they were proposing to do. And we got interested in this because uh, in the first round of this um, program, there was a huge bias toward men getting these grants. They were called foundation grants. So this was work uh, led by Holly Wideman um, at Université Laval. And I should say CIHR completely cooperated with this research because they were very much did not want to have a program that had built in sort of discriminatory biases. So we looked at this and 
we because it was two phase we could look at what happened when they were evaluating this sort of uh investigator focused criteria versus the scientific merits and what we found was there was a huge gender disparity when they're evaluating the scientist and almost none when they're evaluating the quality of the research they're proposing so one immediately you could say like shouldn't we just be evaluating the scientific merits of the proposal for one uh where there was no bias. And second, we could look at the criteria they were using and how it produced a biased outcome. One, if you're if you're scoring people based on these nebulous things like leadership and prominence, we know that those are already things that trigger gender biased associations in people just because of the society we live in. We also know it favors older people in science. And the older you go in scientists, the more gender disparity there is as well, because there was lower participation of women in science for all sorts of reasons that you guys know about. Um, and so basically, the main finding of that was that it's all these sort of culturally embedded criteria about who's a leader, and who gets invited to speak a lot, and who gets awards, that was driving this very disparate output in funding. Um, and so it this program was also not good for other reasons, and they eventually got rid of it. Um, but I got interested in that um, for for quite a few reasons. One, I want a system that's fair, and I think we had an opportunity to look at that. Two, I think in, in life sciences specifically, um, for a long time now, it has been either even or majority uh, women getting degrees in life science fields, uh, especially in biology and things like that. But we haven't seen the same shift as you go up the sort of career path from assistant to associate professor to full professor. Part of that's just time, but it has been long enough uh, that women are getting PhDs at, at rates that are equal or high to men in these fields um, for that to have been evened out, but it's not. There's still at different career stages, we, we lose women and we were kind of curious as to why and it, is it the way we allocate opportunities and resources particularly early in careers and later that's driving this. And we think to some extent that it is. Um, and so I think we got interested in this because we saw a problem that we had the opportunity to use some data to address. Um, but also I think um, scientists uh, should be involved in science policy because um, we kind of are on the ground. It affects us, but also we have insight into how science policy affects the work of science in ways that policymakers don't, right? Um, so I think we have an obligation to kind of try to advise funding agencies and advise government on how they should allocate resources, especially if we see something going really wrong, like this program that was really biasing the allocation of resources to toward older and male researchers. We know there are other biases in the system too. Like we, until recently, CHR and Canadian funding agencies, for example, weren't collecting uh, data about race. They weren't collecting data about disability status and these other kinds of things that are important to look at as well. Um, in the US, there's a huge focus now on, on the NIH and the disparity in funding for, for black principal investigators and figuring out what, actually it's been known for a long time now, over 10 years, and there's been very little corrective action, but um, but it's important for scientists, I think, to play a really vocal role in making sure that agencies uh, try to do it for ethical reasons, but also try to fund uh, the best research, which means eliminating bias from evaluation practices. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
there are two arguments I think that you've there are two arguments that you've identified here about the need for to include women within the science field and not just women all kinds of people who are discriminated against within the sciences and underrepresented the first is that there's a basic principles argument which is that we want to include people from a diverse array of backgrounds because we don't think the circumstances into which you're born and the way that you're born should determine how much success you have in your career or how free you are to pursue certain activities but the other argument you identified is that there's a utilitarian cost to not having to not including women or other individuals who are discriminated against in the sciences, which is just that you get less efficient proposals, right? You're not hiring the best people for the job because there is a discrimination and a bias against them in multiple stages of the hiring process, the granting process, whatever it may be. And what you've identified here is that there's, even though a lot of women have degrees in the life sciences, and that's something we see certainly in undergraduate classes, that a lot of women go into the field, there's disparity among the leadership positions. So if you look at a company and you say, oh, well, 50% of the hires are women, this must mean it's equal. You can't stop there. You have to also look at the allocation and the distribution of people in certain positions of leadership and power. There was something interesting you were saying earlier about the bias of leadership and these other kind of soft quantifying factors towards people who are older, towards people who are male. And I was sitting in one of my classes for... It was a life sciences class. It was a second year level. And one of the lecturers that we had was, I'll say a pretty old woman. She's probably been in the field for a very, very long time. And I remember I was almost shocked. It felt weird because almost all the time, my older professors, especially in the life sciences, have been men. And it's something that's really interesting to be able to observe, especially looking at how a lot of people pursuing the Bachelor of Science, Bachelor of Life Sciences degree here are oftentimes women and they're taught overwhelmingly by these older guys. So just to follow that up with, just to follow up that uh, kind of tangent with a question, academia has had and still has a reputation for being exclusive and elitist in a lot of ways. So mm-hmm. if you had to name one or two policies that you would implement to improve inclusivity in research in academia, what would they be? Right. Um, so I think one thing we do, and, and this is a really difficult uh problem. Um, But again, in all sorts of evaluations, whether it's admissions into undergrad or grad school, or who we give fellowships to, or who we give opportunities to, um, we often get someone's, you know, their CV, basically, and an application. And a lot of the criteria we use um, for grad school admission or giving fellowships are things like uh, grade point average, prior research experience, And these are things that do, to some extent, reflect someone's ability or their commitment or their, but they're also things that are highly correlated with other kinds of privilege, right? Um, A student who has to work full time to support themselves during their undergrad doesn't necessarily have time to volunteer in a lab, and they don't get that kind of, necessarily the same kind of experience, or maybe, you know, they don't, they're students who have massive support networks around them to make sure they're fully prepared for standardized tests or for AP tests or for it. So we have to find a way to, to create opportunities for people who haven't already had them, right? We can't just keep rewarding the same people throughout their whole lives. And so you, you tend to see a lot of people who have the career where at every career stage, they've been given all the resources and opportunities. They've been given the most prestigious fellowship. They've 
they've gotten the best grades and then they get into the best program and all those things are big advantages. Like um, the main difference between like a really prestigious program and maybe ones that are where that are less prestigious is that everything's easier in a more prestigious program. We act like it's harder. We act like if you go to like the top uh, fancy richest school in, t- in the field you're going into, it's going to be the most challenging and competitive. It's actually not true at all. Everything is easier at elite institutions <laughs> because they have all these resources and because they're there to, to do that. They're there to make sure the people there succeed. And they put resources into making sure. And it's the people who are in the under-resourced environments, but might have just as much ability and just as much commitment. And if we gave them those kinds of opportunities, they would they would do just as well or better. And so we and I I don't have like a set of recommendations for how to do this, but we need to find a way to evaluate people that doesn't punish them for not having already had advantages and opportunities. Um, and I see, I see this at every career stage, you know, I see this at all kinds of different things. Um, and I think that, uh, we do do some of these things well, um, but ultimately, so I'll give you an example from Canada, which is, I have a Canada research chair. Um, it's, it's a program. We, we act like having a Canada research chair is some big deal, but actually these are things that are just kind of like allocated by the government, right? Each institution gets a certain number of them. And then the institution allocates them based on totally internal systems that no one really, it's a black box, right? But, you know, maybe it was the biology department's turn to have one. I was the newest guy in the biology department. So they're like, how about this guy? And they're like, okay. Uh, it's not like it's, it's, the success rate for them is extremely high, right? If, if your department and your institution nominates you for it, you're almost certainly going to get it. That's very unlike competing for an actual research grant. The CRC doesn't give me money to do research. It just gives McGill money to pay my salary. Uh, getting money to do research is actually really hard because it really is a, a competition of, about scientific merit. It's not just some nomination process for a pre-existing number of awards. So, as you can imagine, when something is informal, like the CRC, and it's handled internally through these mysterious processes, biases creep in. And the fact was, for, for the first 20 years plus of its existence, the CRC went almost entirely to white men. Uh, and it was so bad that in the early 2000s, a group of women in Canada, faculty members, uh, basically took the program to human rights court and said it's just so overtly discriminatory, discriminatory, it's a joke. And the court agreed, and the CRC program was ordered to introduce policies to diversify. So what they did was they told all the universities, like, you have to stop just nominating white men. You have to start, like, recognizing that there are, there are other talented people among your faculty and not just have these like behind the closed doors handshakes about who's going to get one. Um, and guess what? Nothing happened. So 12, 15 years later, the same group went back and they said, nothing's changed. Um, and then the judge had to tell the program again, you have to fix it. And so it wasn't until like 2017 or so that they really took steps to fix it. And the step they had to take to fix it was to tell universities, you're going to hit these targets so that your CRCs look like your faculty at large, or you're going to lose them. You're not going to get the money anymore. And then suddenly every university is like, uh, they have like an EDI office and a CRC person looking into writing a diversity plan. And they're trying to, so 
universities are institutions. They might have some good, uh, you know, mission statements about what they believe in, but ultimately they're self-interested institutions and they're not going to change unless you hold a gun to their head. And the, the gun is money from the government. Um, and so you really like the only things they respond to are money or like uh, public shame, pretty much. Uh, otherwise, they they just won't change. And it's not that the people who run them are evil or bad. It's just that institutions do this. They're self-interested entirely. And they they tend to reward privilege. They tend to like, um, they reflect society in, in some of the worst possible ways. And so in order to change them, you really have to force them through. And that's what happened with the CRC program. And that's what made it start to sort of diversify and recognize that that there are you know the faculty has to be the the crc faculty have to look like the faculty as a whole and ideally they should look like canadians as a whole too right uh we're public institutions we we perform research and educate people and the professoriate should look like the people the population at large right um for all sorts of reasons not just the sort of fairness and um, sort of letting people see that they can become these things too, but also just because we know that diverse groups of people tend to make better decisions and they tend to make more creative decisions because you have people from all kinds of different backgrounds and experiences contributing ideas. Um, so it's really hard, I would, is, is the short answer. You really have to force institutions to change because they won't on their own. Yeah, and what you've talked about here You've identified two things. So in your research, you kind of research, you look at this step of the process that is discriminatory, right? And then you say, okay, because the step of the process is discriminatory, we're going to eliminate this step and we should, you know, call attention to that. So that's a negative control. I wouldn't use the term negative control, but it's a negative measure where you remove a part of the process that's discriminatory. But you've also talked for the need for positive measures as well. So implementing quotas, implementing boards that focus on DEI and the need for actual incentive to do these things because otherwise universities are just kind of like, yeah, that's a nice suggestion. We kind of don't care. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's so much inertia in a big institution and the way we do things. And you know, academic hiring is already like our career path is it's like medieval, right? It's this apprenticeship model where you train forever under like more senior people. And then it was funny when I was thinking as a postdoc that I would uh, go to industry instead. I did some industry interviews. And um, I think the only reason that I didn't do it, and I actually went on the academic job market, was it freaked me out how fast things were happening. Like I did an a, a industry interview. And then a week later, they were like, okay, that sounds great. We'd like you to start in two weeks. And I was like, wait a second, two weeks. Like I've never thought like that close. <laughs> like I was thinking like next year sometime, maybe, <laughs> you know, cause you get in this slow academic way of thinking about things. And I was like, oh, I haven't even tried the academic job market. Um, so yeah, we're very, it changes very slowly. Everything about the career is slow. You know, who else, you know, how old do you think someone who's called an assistant professor is on average? <laughs> And you're constantly in these like junior positions uh, uh, for most of your life, actually. You know? 
the thing you say about medieval uh hiring practices is actually so funny it's like i'm an apprentice and i'm an apprentice under lord hendrix and i am applying <laughs> for knighthood or something like that <laughs> okay I'm it gonna is, head it off it, to... oh yeah go ahead I, sorry go ahead yeah yeah i was just about to say um i just think it's funny how archaic it is yeah it is and there are good reasons um that uh i think the apprenticeship model has some good things about it I, I like the way we organize training in science. I think it's really special that like the people doing PhDs in science are the people who are performing publicly funded research, right? They're, it's not that you're just learning something, you're, you're doing it. Like you're, you are, they are the research workforce for publicly funded research is graduate students. Um, and so it's this really hybrid kind of thing. And that's why we can pay people to go to grad school in some disciplines is because I mean, we, not that we pay them well, but it's, you know, if you go to a vocational graduate program, right, you go to law school or medical school or something like this, you're going to go into debt, you're going to pay, because the deal is you're paying for some accreditation um, that's going to allow you to be in a particular career that pays well, um, or you want for some other reason. In science, it's truly an academic degree, right? It's not a vocational degree. You're not when you do a PhD, you're not training to be a professor. You don't learn anything about being a professor. And when you start a job as a professor, none of the stuff you did in a postdoc matters. Like you have some niche domain-specific knowledge about your field, but being a, a lab head and professor is about being a teacher and basically being like a small business owner, right? Suddenly you have to manage budgets and people and work in all these ways, they never teach you to do that. So you're not training for any particular job when you do a PhD. You're immersing yourself in an academic discipline and learning as you do in any activity, you're learning a lot of skills, but we can pay you because you're also doing the research that the government is paying us to do. Um, and so I think it's a really cool kind of hybrid uh, model for training. Uh, we should be paying grad students a lot more. It's actually embarrassing how low they're paid in Canada, I think. Um, but this is tied to the size of our grants and the size of fellowship programs. It's not something really individual departments or programs can do much about, um, although we try. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, another question. You just, you talked a lot about just a very refreshing point of view, honestly. Like, I think there's a lot of times that we sort of feel stuck in academia, at least I do. I mean, it's my first year in undergrad, so I haven't had much experience with it. But um, I think there is an attitude of these are things that you sort of sweep under the rug. And I think it's really admirable that as a professor, you're actually talking about it. Um, so a question for you, take us through a general day in your life. What are the most important skills you use? Are there things that you really enjoy doing outside of work? How do you think your personal life influences how you approach academia and how you approach your job? Um, sure. Um, I would say like the most, two of the most important things I've done as an academic are one, I never set up my voicemail so people can't leave me voicemail messages. And I almost never answer my office phone unless I'm expecting someone to call. Um, the other is... Um, email triage uh the, the uh so holly Woodman, who, who i worked with on the on the funding project she led that that paper also taught me how to set up a good inbox filtering system so that things that i don't need to respond to like i never see pretty much or there's there's 
subfolders I only check like once a week or something. And then moving all like lab communication away from email, which is just like this dumpster fire. And so lab communication is all on Slack. So the things that are important and matter to me, I, I can make sure I see. And all the like endless fire hose of pointless emails from McGill, I can ignore most of the time. Um, so that's one of the big work things is to is to realize that there's a ton of stuff that people are asking you to do and pay attention to that you can safely ignore um, and figuring out what that is and how to identify it has been really important. Um, my job changes a lot, like uh, different parts of the year. So when I'm teaching, it's, I would say like at least 50% of my time is devoted to teaching related things, not like preparing classes, but also managing classes and, and talking to students and things like that. Um, and then there's most of the year where I'm not teaching um, and I'm trying to focus on research. So that's usually talking to grad students, troubleshooting experiments, doing experimental design stuff. So I figure like if I walk into the lab and everyone's like, what are you doing here? That's a good sign because it means like things are going pretty well. Um, the, the main thing I can contribute to the lab is I, I can often fix things uh, that aren't working um, and I can help with data analysis, but really it's the grad students who are experimentally pushing things. A lot of time is spent writing grants because um, everything goes away without grants. Um, and then there's a lot of service stuff. So um, faculty also are fully engaged in running the institution, right? So all the committees and things that, again, you have to be careful here because I think a lot of them are pointless waste of time, but a lot of them are also really important for running the institution well, for making sure that uh, curriculums happen and make sense and that students uh, are that we're providing what students need for their degrees and that we're sort of managing things in a proper way. So a lot universities are weird in that we have this big administration, but actually uh, the principle of shared governance means faculty have to be involved in a lot of running the institution too and making decisions about academic priorities and things within the institution. And so that's the other thing we do. Um, in terms of my life, so my, my wife is also an academic, um, She's a social scientist. Um, academic life has a lot of flexibility in it, which is nice. Um, you know, no one checks to see when I'm in my office or when I'm around. I like to be around just because to be part of the lab and stuff. Um, but a lot of work can be done from other places. And so we can be at home or we can travel a bit. Not that we've traveled pandemic, uh, but uh, and keep working. Um, I think it is important to have things you love doing I, there's a danger that, um, you know, science and academic life can become your whole thing, uh, which I think is not great. So you have to have other things you like uh, about where you live and what you do. I've always, so, you know, I was going to be a music major. I've, I've been interested and in played music all my life. So I try to keep adding new things in that. Um, so like when we were, I always played piano and then um, when we were in and some other instruments and when we were in Singapore and Southeast Asia, I started playing like Southeast Asian music, like learning Indonesian music. And I continued that in Boston. And then I try to add skills like that. And so I keep learning other kinds of things. That's important too. That's really cool. Yeah. About the music. Uh, I yeah. have a quick question about that. Yeah. What, in your opinion, this is a fun question, what, in your opinion, is 
the best album you have ever listened to? I know if I can answer that question. Do you have like, I don't maybe think I, a top I, three? I'm going to date myself too much. Um, gosh. I feel like I'm putting you on the spot here. You really you are, because <laughs> my lab does this too. So especially there's one guy in my lab who likes music from the 90s. And so we talk about it sometimes uh, with those kind of... Uh, and they're always like pushing me like, oh, make a Spotify playlist or tell us your favorite albums from this time. I don't, they're curious. Um, I don't have like favorites, I don't think. A Hendrix Lab Spotify playlist does sound pretty nice. Yeah, we, I think there's too much, there might be too much breadth there. I think they have, we have like, you know, like Jorge who likes 90s indie rock and Hannah's like a Swifty and like the mix might not work, you know, maybe <laughs> I think if we have, everyone ha has headphones. I think if we had a shared lab speaker, it might get ugly, like in terms of. <laughs> the Taylor Swift immediately followed up by Pink Floyd. Yeah. And then when I sit so, so Sebastian, it's always like, I just hear like, like what sound like EDM beats coming out of his headphones. I don't see. Like... Well, sometimes a myriad of different things can come together in a beautiful way. We call it a mosaic. I'm that's not right. sure if that's how the Spotify playlist would end up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just going to ask you one more question about the data processing, which I know is a bit of a sciencey question, but I'm actually really interested in it. So one mm -hmm. thing, one concept that I've kind of gotten very interested in lately, I'm going to have to take a calculus course for this, which is unfortunate, but yeah. it's essentially about chaos theory. So when you have these very large chaotic and unpredictable systems, like the brain of a sea, the, the neuron, the neural activity of a sea elegance roundworm, you have to model it in a very specific and a very precise way and very, very small differences in the inputs of what you put into the model can drastically change what you would expect from the output, especially when you go forward in time. So when you're dealing with the data, do you use predictive analysis? What kind of stuff do you look at and how do you deal with it mathematically or even within a computer model? What kind of stuff do you do with that? Yeah. Um, so I'd say, so, so brains are dynamic, dynamical systems. Um, they're, they're hard to, lots of approaches to modeling them. Um, I would say that brains probably don't have so many characteristics of chaotic systems and this like hypersensitive sensitivity to initial uh, conditions because um, biological systems have a, as a huge overarching concept that they have to be robust, right? They have to. So I think there are lots of things um, in biological systems that actually buffer responses. Um, you know, when an organism predicts a sees a stimulus, you don't want tiny differences in the characteristics of that stimulus to result in like wildly different behavioral outputs in response to it. There has to be some channeling and making sure things stay within uh, normal parameters for the brain, right? When you have something that really goes out of control in the brain, you worry that's something like a seizure, right? It's uncontrolled uh, um, feedback activity or chaotic activity that that isn't within the scope of normal patterns of activity. So I think the brain has lots of constraints on its on its activity. Um, it's very complex, and so it does have like very complex dynamics in terms of like phase space and stuff. Um, and that's the kind of tools people try to use to understand whole brain activity is they use these um, dimensionality reduction algorithms to try to 
understand what lower dimensional representations of high dimensional brain activity data can tell us about what the brain's doing. Now, in C. elegans, people do whole brain imaging um, the, for a few reasons we don't use it. One, you miss a lot of kinds of activity in whole brain imaging. Um, and two, it's most of the questions we ask are at the level of identified connections, like like sort of handfuls of neurons that we know how they're connected to each other. Um, and the kinds of methods we use are various kinds of time series analysis. So often we want to know how activity in two different neurons or activity in a neuron and a particular behavioral parameter are related to each other in time. And it's a little tricky because a lot of our methods in math are just based on instantaneous correlation, right? How well correlated are these signals? Um, the the hard part about that is things might not be, they might be correlated with each other, but with a time delay, right? Because signals take time to go through the brain, and behavior takes time. And so we use some of these methods we talked about in 216, like cross-correlation and stuff, where they look at correlations over different time lags um, between events, whether it's a neural activity event or a behavioral event. Um, and so we're often doing that kinds of time series analysis. The other thing you want to be careful of in brain and behavior is that lots of things are correlated, but that doesn't give you insight into which things are causing which. Like if you look in the brain of a C. elegans at the activity of the neurons, lots of the neurons have activity that's correlated with each other, but which neurons are required for activity in other neurons or which ones are required to produce a behavior um, is gonna be usually a small subset of those. And so finding the connections and activity that are actually causal for a behavior or necessary to respond to a particular stimulus is, is always a harder question and requires us actually going in and functionally manipulating components of the system. Um, so we have tons of ways of recording, even from big brains now. So like there are these neuropixels probes that record from thousands of neurons at the same time or imaging things that do calcium imaging in thousands of neurons at the same time. Um, making sense of data sets on that scale is is really difficult and requires this kind of like reducing dimensionality reduction and then trying to see where the experimental parameters, whether it's the animal's behavior or the stimulus, where those variables exist within that lower dimensional brain activity space. I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, it's, it's one of the most sort of... Uh, it's kind of where the field is now in terms of trying to understand what brains are doing um, on these larger scales. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff. Um, I had a question and now it's totally evaporated. So give me like five seconds to get back to it. It's going to come sure, back. Yeah, yeah. Um, One go thing ahead. I thought was really interesting, um, just while I was taking 216 to give a little more time to think, um, Honestly, the dimensionality reduction part of the course was amazing to just even think about. Like, I had never thought about data collection in the life sciences in that way before. And you were talking about sort of like the connectivity of different parts of the brains. And um, I was actually like studying for our 216 midterm with a friend and we were like sitting in my room and we were like, it takes so much like energy to just move your hand and your brain is like talking to itself and it's it's just like yeah crazy to think about honestly and the amount of data that must come out of things like that is 
mind-boggling. It is. I, I think I think about that all the time too. We do every simple things that we do, and we take them for granted, and they feel effortless, right? We're not expending any mental energy on creating a stable visual representation of the world, but our brain is like going nuts, like consuming energy and creating representations just to give us this effortless sense of a stable environment around us and where our body is positioned in space and how our body is moving relative to sensory input we're getting. But all this stuff is 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 below our sort of conscious awareness. And so I think in some ways it was underappreciated. What I think is really cool is that there are people, you know, at least from the 1700s, who through just deeply introspecting about how they perceive and how they move, sort of had this idea that, okay, the brain, in order to make sensory sense of the world, our brain must also be uh, creating signals about our own movement and things like that. And I think that's something that's a really exciting part of neuroscience right now, seeing like how animals, even in the sensory areas, tons of the activity is about their own movement and their own behavior. And that's what allows them to make sense of sensory input in a lot of contexts. Okay, I've remembered what my question was. I forgot, and then I remember. Uh, okay, so I read this fascinating. I don't know if this is going to make it to post production, but we'll see. Okay. I've read this fascinating in article in Aeon recently, and it's called "Our Brain Is Not a Computer." And basically, the thrust of the article is that we have taken as a human species to kind of look at the brain because it's a very complex system in terms of the most complex technology that exists at the time. So when we had technology that was basic machinery, uh, steam powered things, when we had giant machines that were made out of a bunch of screws and springs, we kind of thought of the brain as mechanically oriented around the same mechanisms. And now dominant technology of I'd say the 21st century is the computer. And because of that, we tend to think of the brain as a computer of sorts. So we say we store memories, we engage, you know, we we receive a certain stimulus and then we execute essentially like this mental program. So we see right. a red apple and then we execute like the grab apple, inspect apple, eat apple directory. And that the article had argued that's not how we think about things at all. And there's a pitfall where we look too closely at the dominant technology as a model for cognition because that's not really how the brain works we don't store physical memories there's no physical imprint like there's no single neuron that stores a single memory and we need to avoid thinking about things like that so if you had to kind of propose a cognitive model since you study this a lot for how people think about and how they process things i mean just any kind of organism with a nervous system in general what would it be and what would it look like yeah, uh, that's a that's a great question. And I'll, I'll say something about the question, which I think is um, some of the debate around is the brain a computer is just is kind of a semantic argument in the sense that I, I love this, too, that throughout history, whatever, you know, the brain is a steam engine, the, the brain is weights and pulleys, the brain is like a, you know, hydraulic system, whatever, like these kinds of things, we, we make these analogies all the time. I will say, so in, in the field of like sort of theoretical computation and theoretical neuroscience, they they, they, def, they have a abstract mathematical definition of what a computer is that does, in a very straightforward way, include things like computers that we build and things like brains. And like that's, but you're right in that 
our brain does not function like the technology that we call a computer. So there's, there's the usage of the word computer, which is like the things we build as humans that perform computations and do things like this. But then there's the larger mathematical category of things that are computers, like Turing machines and all these sort of abstract concepts of what a computer is. And the brain definitely is one of those because it's an operational definition of the kinds of things that such a system can do. And our brain does those things. So our brain is a computer in that abstract sense. It's not a computer in that it, it bears some functional like uh, homology to what a digital computer does. So, so that's the hair I would split on that thing. But I, I love the point about how we we always reach for like a a coolest technology and think like that's how we work too. Like it's it's kind of this weird, <laughs> it's a weird human thing to do. Um, how does the brain work? I have like no idea. Uh, but I think one of the things people are excited to see. So like the stuff we were talking about with dimensionality reduction is one thing you could say is like, okay, the brain has this complex activity and we can describe it using the language of statistics, which is all dimensionality reduction is doing, right? It's describing, it's taking statistical parameters that describe a data set about the brain. So that could just be a description that that is useful for us, but has nothing to do with what's biologically going on in the brain. Or it could be that these lower dimensions that we find actually are where encoding happens in the brain. So you were saying like, it's probably not the case that a memory is flipping some bit inside a neuron, right? Or something. But we know that there are ensembles of neurons that physically do somehow allow a memory to be recalled or allow a memory to be encoded. And what's freaky about it to me is that a particular memory, um, which neurons are storing it or encoding it can drift over time. But it's something about a stable relationship between ensembles of neurons that constitutes a memory that creates a new input-output relationship in the brain. And so something's changing about groups of neurons that is not necessarily stable at the level of individual neurons or even stable as a group, but stable about an activity pattern that can be represented in multiple ways in the brain. And the question then is, do those representations that encode a memory or encode like a, a, a variable about a stimulus or encode a particular action sequence of movement, do these exist in these same low dimensional spaces that we're deriving from high dimensional brain data? And if they do, then that's really cool because it means the statistical processing we're doing on the brain isn't just for our convenience. It actually has something to do with the biology of the brain and how it works. Um, so that would be really satisfying. I think we're still a little bit stuck, right, though? We're still a little bit stuck at understanding um, mechanistically on in the brain that allows something like a memory to be in stored in something that seems so fluid and abstract as a new relationship pattern among an ensemble of neurons. Well, how can that be a memory or be a... Uh, um, a familiar action, like an ability we have. It's very hard um, to wrap our heads around, I think. And it's, I think it's going to remain hard to wrap our heads around for a long time, probably. Kind of crazy to think about just like how you're doing research, like your brain is doing research to understand itself and then <laughs> you don't understand it. And it just like confuses me just in general.
Well, it's kind of cool to think about because when I think, so like if I'm learning something new on a musical instrument, I think that it's a great context in which to think about like neuroscience and because often that's what we make animals do, right? We make them learn a task. And so, um, you know, when, when Stuart biology flooded and we were closed for like three weeks and stuff, I decided something I would do so I couldn't go to work because I could learn a new instrument. So um, I got a banjo and the, and um, the way you play the banjo, there's this particular style of it I was learning that has a very particular kind of way of striking the strings and um, certain rhythmic patterns. And as we all find when you learn like a new motor task is that it seems like impossible at first. And but all you have to do is repeat it and then go to sleep and wake up and repeat it and go to sleep and have all these short training periods, just like we do to a mouse or a rat. We give them a bunch of, you know, uh, spread out uh, training trials. We get really good at things really fast. And to think that you think the amount of control that goes into these kinds of fine motor movements from our motor cortex in our brain down through our spinal cord through the activity of, you know, the, the incredibly precise contraction of muscles it requires to move in a particular way um something really amazing is changing about what our brain can do and produces an output pattern i think it's fascinating it's uh like learning motor control is is a really mind-blowing thing and yeah i think the fact that maybe it's like our brains there's some sort of like principle that you can't have a brain that can understand itself or something like i don't know <laughs> We're going to have to wait for chat GPT to explain our brains to us once it gets better. Oh, for sure. Those AI systems are certainly something. Okay, yeah. we're going to wrap this up and I'm going to ask you one last question. Okay. So a lot of people listening to this podcast and organizing this podcast as well are undergraduates looking to go into the sciences or STEM more broadly. Undergrad is also a time where a lot of people are just exploring themselves and figuring out how they're going to get where they want to be, figuring out what they want and how to achieve their goals, realize themselves in a way. So if you were going to give your undergraduate self, since you took this nonlinear path, some advice, either about research or just in general, what would it be? I think it would be really helpful for people to hear about it. Yeah. Um, one thing is, I think, uh, well, I'll preface all of this by saying, uh, be careful of taking advice from people who are very much older than you uh, because life and the world changed very quickly. And I don't think, so for myself, like during my, at least during my academic career, definitely the most useful advice I get is from people who are maybe five to 10 years ahead of me. And beyond that, the advice goes down in value really fast because what it was like for someone who did a PhD 20, 25, 30 years before me, the world just is not like that in academia or outside academia. So that's my grain of salt for all of this, because uh, I'm quite a bit older than, than you guys now. But I would say my impression is that students often feel like um, a lot of anxiety around decisions about academic programs and grad school, because they feel like every decision is mostly like closing other doors. Like once you choose one thing, the other things are all gone and off the table. Um, they also feel like there is a best path or the right path ahead and that they have to make that decision or they're, or they're going to be unhappy or feel know that they've... You can never know what your life might have been like. There are lots of like good and best paths forward. Um, and so I think 
don't worry about closing doors. They're not really closed. You can go back. So I went back. I think it's it's not easy to go back um, necessarily. Like I had to find someone who would take a chance on me uh, as someone who'd been outside academia for a while and done other things, but such people exist. Um, so you're not closing doors. You should be happy with what you're doing at every stage. If you're unhappy with your degree program, but you think if I just stick it out, I'm going to start to love this field or love this work. It's probably not true. If you're in grad school and you don't like being a grad student, but you think, oh, once I get my PhD, everything will be great. You're probably wrong. If you don't like being a grad student, um, you probably shouldn't do a PhD, right? <laughs> it seems I, These things sound stupidly obvious, but I feel like a lot of people build up a goal in their head. Like I want to be a faculty member or I want a particular kind of industry job or I want a particular kind of teaching job. And I, and I hate this, but I have to do it to get to that goal. If you don't like what you're doing, it's not going to get better. It's, it's, you have to, you sh there are things that are hard about being a grad student and stressful about being it, but you have to separate that about like, if you're not excited about the field and excited about research and if doing experiments and getting results doesn't make you really happy. Um, you're never going to be happy as a scientist because it's the only thing you get that makes you happy because you, you're, you're not going to get rewarded in any other way. The only way you get rewarded is like that, those little bits of like juice you get from like discovering something or seeing a cool result and they don't come all the time. Um, so if, if you don't get happy when they do come, it's, it's the wrong job for you. And if you're doing a PhD, you are capable of doing a lot of other things. Um, and there are lots of kinds of jobs and careers that are fulfilling and people enjoy and you probably make more money than you would otherwise. And um, I don't know. There aren't a lot of bad choices, I think, for students who are in your position. Um, there are lots of great things to do. Well, thank you for that advice. Um, it's been amazing talking to you. This interview has been a lot of fun for us. Um, yeah, so thanks for being a guest on STEMcast. That was uh, super fun. Thank you both very much for the invitation.